going with this one. Cool. All right. If you want to help me, I'm going to pray for Andy. If you want to stretch out your hands, we're going to pray for our dear brother. Lord, we thank you for Andy. Lord, we thank you for the work you've done in his life. Thank you for just the living testimony he is, Lord, of your grace at work, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that as he shares from your word this morning, as he's been preparing over the last few weeks, Lord, that uh, what he's prepared would just speak to our hearts, Lord, that your Holy Spirit be working in and through him, Lord. Let us all leave changed by your word this morning, Lord. Give Andy the right words to say, Lord, that your Holy Spirit wants to highlight in our lives this morning. Bless him, we pray, Lord. We love him dearly, Lord, and we know that you love him even more. Amen. Amen. Bless you, bro. Sorry, guys. We don't have the Britney mic this morning, so um, I'm going to have to deal with holding this. So bear with me if I'm doing this this morning. Um, well, if, I was going to say, if it's your first time here, we're really pleased to have you, but everyone's gone out. So <laughs> um, if you've been here for long enough, uh, thanks for staying. <laughs> um, we usually spend this time of the service going through the Bible. And uh, we've been going through a series recently uh, titled Worship and War. Uh, we've been following the character of David and his life. And uh, we've been looking through the books of Samuel in the Old Testament um, at the narrative of his life. And then we usually would dip into uh, one of the Psalms that he wrote uh, that contained either a song or a poem or some of his memoirs that correspond to the events um, in, in the book of Samuel. And really the aim of the series uh, for us is to reconcile um, our day-to-day lives with our spiritual acts of worship and war. You see, David was characterized by these two themes of worship and war. He was both a man who was mighty in battle but also humble in worship to God. So today uh, we're going to be reading from Psalm 60 and then uh, a few verses from 2 Samuel. So they'll be up on the screen behind me, hopefully. Great. Uh, Feel free to follow along in your Bibles. You might want to have them open up today because I'm going to be jotting through some of the verses as we go along. Um, If you've got your phones, go ahead and scroll. Um, So I'm going to read from Psalm 60, and then we'll jump straight into 2 Samuel and then pray. So, O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. O restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. Selah. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. With exultation I will divide up Sheshem. And portion out the veil of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Felicitia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. And then to Samuel. Uh, Okay, we're going to read verse 1, 13 and 14. Uh, David also 
Ah, there we go. Look at that. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Methag Amma from the control of the Philistines. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. All right, let's pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you so much for this time together with you. Thank you that we are, we are opening up your words. And we pray that you would speak to us, that we would have open hearts and ears. Lord, please teach through me. Uh, take away anything that is not of you. And I pray, Jesus, as always, that we would love you more as a result. Amen. So today's sermon title is Vexation and Victory. You've probably already seen it behind me. And we'll be looking at three main things. So the first is the ups and downs of following God. Second, God's covenantal commitment to us. And third, our victory is with God. So let me set the scene. The people of God are in a tough place. They, as a nation throughout history, have been engaged with physical warfare with the surrounding nations. And they've experienced victory as well as defeat. And so I want us to be really sensitive this morning to the complexities of this difficult situation. And right from the get-go in, at the start of the psalm, if you want to put it up, David engages us with the very reality of the land itself. So the people of God find them in a place uh, that is both rejected, defenseless, torn open, staggering, tottering. David uses such potent language to catch us up with the reality of what they're living in. If we, if we imagine a building that's gone through an earthquake, it's, it's leaning and, and it's missing parts and the windows are smashed and it's kind of hanging on by its last thread. And this is what David's depicting to us of the land itself. Uh, in, at the start of 2 Samuel in verse 1 and in Psalm 60 verse 9, uh, David gives us context as to how the land came to be. So David speaks of this uh, city called Edom. Um, and he also mentions it in 2 Samuel as Methig Amma, which translates as something similar to uh, the key of the nation or a curb or a bridle. See, it was, the, um, it was the frontier city of what we would have modern day Petra in Jordan. And, and it was built into the face of the mountain. So it had been come to known as impenetrable by men. And it was this city that belonged to the Philistines that had subdued the people of God. It was was incredibly difficult to fight against them. And not only had the land itself suffered, but this was supposed to depict something of the eternal struggles of the people of God. You see, they as a nation felt broken and rejected. They too had their, their hearts torn open. They had quaked under God's anger and spiritually they they tottered. And for many of us here in this room, both believers and non-believers, we at some degree have experienced something like this. That that feeling of of confusion and and abandonment and and we look around at our lives and we we just see the rubble that we sit in. We too know what it's like to to grieve. In those places where where our faith is tested and and we cry as David cries in the psalm, we have seen hard things. And that's not just 
circumstantially, but as the psalm shows us, the people of God are grieving over their struggles in their failures. You see, in those places, it leads us into confusion and and wrestling with God and with our faith. and, And we even begin to question God's commitment to us. For God's people in this psalm, David shows us that out of their disobedience to God, they have found themselves in this rubble. Uh, we, we've seen that Saul, the previous king, who was who now dead at this point, he, he in acting in his, in his sense of superiority and, and confidence in himself, he actually leads the people of God without God, and, and then they suffer the consequences of, of military defeat. Uh, in Psalm 60, verses 10 to 12, David shows us that with God, we shall do valiantly, which implies that without him, it all goes sour. He acknowledges that, that God, you, did, you do not go into battle with our army because of, of the people of God's pride in themselves and putting their, their faith in man's strength. And very often for us as believers, that is the temptation, which is to, to, put, to bank on our own strength to get through seasons that are, that are difficult, to get through spiritual seasons that are tough. And it comes as no surprise, we, we live in a culture that encourages independence. Now, independence is not a bad thing. It's a great thing. It, it honors God in, in some way. But, but the thing is, we live in a society that has high expectations over us to, to grab the ball by the horns, to, to unleash the, the inner hero. I mean, we've had enough Marvel films, to be honest, um, to overcome our challenges and to come out on top as victorious. Our society is obsessed with perfectionism and being the absolute best. But you see, as the pendulum overswings, the the image of dependence is synonymous with weakness. That is often what is communicated, that, that we see it as a negative thing to be dependent on something. Maybe even childish, immature, and we begin to resent it. Uh, we'd, we'd much rather be proud of ourselves, a sense of accomplishment and winning. And so the natural response, as the Apostle Paul uh, warns the church in Ephesus later on, is that we grieve the Holy Spirit. He says in Ephesians 4 verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We've learned in previous weeks in this series that the anointing on Saul had departed and rested on David instead. Because of Saul's disobedience to God, because of his confidence in his own flesh, because he had grieved God's spirit. And it's very easy for us as individuals as well to do likewise. Not just because we're affected by the fall and, and sin, but we quench the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that when we first put our faith in Jesus, he fills us up with a manifest presence, his Holy Spirit. And often for us, it's a misconception that the Holy Spirit is some sort of divine battery pack. That, you know, anointing and and spiritual gifts and God's presence are just sort of additional add-ons that we put in our lives. And And therefore, it leaves us in danger of diminishing the sovereign power of God in our lives. Because what we do is we see ourselves as superior. 
And that is what David has recognized as Israel's major fault in this psalm. It wasn't necessarily just the, the physical battle that had failed, but that, as verse 4 shows, Israel had actually switched their allegiance. The verse reads, you have set up a banner, but this literally translates in the original language as you have set up a banner of truth. See, for David, he had recognized that the people of God had walked away from their dependence on God. And instead, they put their trust in their king, their trust in man, their trust in their own thoughts and ideas. And we see that David declares it as vanity. Another way in which, which we as believers can suppress the Holy Spirit is by not engaging with the truth he has spoken through the scriptures. We conceal our mind with our own thoughts and desires, our own inward intuitions, or maybe even the most popular philosophy of the time. They take preference, they take precedence in the way we think and therefore relates to how we act. And especially in our individualistic culture, we invest so heavily into the autonomy of man. You know, I'm in control. I'm the master of my own fate. I know what is good and bad. I know what is right and wrong. That's what is often communicated to us in our culture. And and therefore, it, it has an impression on the way that we think. It can seep even into the church. And as the Bible so helpfully describes, is that when we do that, we quench the Holy Spirit. See, the Bible states that all scripture is God's breathed. In uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, this is one of my favorite verses, and it keeps me coming back to the scriptures. It says, um, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The key word in this verse is says. The Holy Spirit says, which implies that as Luke's doing right now, when you open up the scriptures and you're reading out what is laid out, God is speaking to you then and there, loud and clear. As we were reading the verses at the start, God was speaking to us. I know that's a really hard concept to wrap around our minds, but I'm sure there are many people here who can testify that when they've sat long enough in the scriptures, they know the power. It's not just some fancy diary that we pick out and read some funny stories and make ourselves feel better about ourselves. The thing is alive. It's working. You see, the people of God in the psalm, they disregarded the truth of God. They, and as a result, they forgot who he was. They forgot that he was actually close to them. You see, God is not hidden high up in the clouds but he's personable with his people. God is personable with his people. He comes close to us. The Bible makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person that God has revealed himself as Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. One God in three persons. This perfect, loving community that has existed for all time. So when we grieve the Holy Spirit, we quench the availability of God himself. Now I mentioned the word grieve, and I know that subject is heavy and it requires a lot of sensitivity 
and time and thought and patience. And I don't want to just skim over it or create some sort of reductionist idea of what grief is. I know it's painful and it's complicated and it requires layers and it requires time to think about it. But I know that it is such an important thing for us to grasp. Um, I myself have spent the last year grieving over the loss of a really close friend. And there's still times where I'm processing and praying about it and and confused and I, I don't quite understand what's happening. But if there's something I've learned over this last year is that with, with grief and with grieving, there's the, a sense of a, a, a deep withdrawal. That, you know, something that you regard with such high respect and, and love and desire has, has been like pulled out of you, has been torn away from you. It's almost like your very breath has been sucked out of your lungs. It's incredibly painful and personal to us. And so when we grieve the Holy Spirit, there's a similar picture at play. We withdraw ourselves away from the source that is God. However, as the psalm shows, that despite what the people of God have done, despite our failures, despite our grieving of him, God has not grieved his people. God has not grieved his promise to them. He has not abandoned them. Instead, he calls them to return to him. God has made a covenant with his people. Now, I know covenant is an old-fashioned word. Steph spoke about it recently, and you know, our society sort of lost it. But I think it's so worth remembering and holding on to. You see, there's nothing else like a covenant. It's not just some contract between two parties with like a set list of behaviors. If you meet this, then we're, then we're happy and we're fine. No, covenant is something that happened in the Old Testament, which, which involves a, a deep blood bond. There's a bond in place. And what they used to do actually in the Old Testament was they would prepare sacrifice and, and they would separate it into two parts and lay it on the floor. And these two parties would, would make a promise of bond and they would walk through these two pieces as if to say, if anything comes between this bond, this promise that we've made, so too let us be like these sacrifices, torn apart and dead. God takes it incredibly seriously when there's a covenant in place. A covenant is not like a contract. It's such a deep, convicting thing that that cannot be compared to. That's why in the church, we speak of marriage as a covenant. Till death do us part. I know that's some pretty heavy stuff to take in right now. So when you get involved with a covenant with God... And when he makes it with you, what he's essentially saying is, I will make myself vulnerable to you. I'm swearing by my own head that I will keep this promise to you. God had made a covenant with his people. I will be your God in faithfulness. I'll walk with you. I will bless you as a nation. You will be a blessing to the surrounding nation. God keeps his promise alive. He does not revert back on it. You will see in verse 6, it reads, God has spoken in his holiness. Now, the literal translation of this 
is God has sworn by his own holiness. The uh, Apostle Paul, he, he, he later writes in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Often we stop here when we read this verse. You've got to carry on. For he cannot disown himself. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot disown himself. You see, God has sworn by himself, I will keep this promise. That's radical because if God goes back on it, he is no longer good. He is no longer faithful. He's no longer God's. But he's determined. He says, I will keep this promise to you. I swear it on myself. And then we see the demonstration of this bond, this, this covenantal commitment that God has with his people. One of the ways in which the Bible describes God's love is agape love. Agape love is this unconditional love for man. No merit involved, no payment. You don't have to earn it. It's freely given. And despite all the failures of the people, and despite sitting in the rubble, God has shown his commitment to them. And we see it in verses 6 to 8. It starts off with God announcing over Israel. But actually, in fact, he's, he's singing over them a song of delight. Verse 6, he says, with exaltation. And even in verse 8, he says, I shout in triumph. It's a magnificent scene of a declaration of what is to come. If any of you have watched uh, Lord of the Rings or something similar... At the start of a, an epic battle, there's usually a sounding of some sort of horn, like a ram's horn or something. And it, and it galvanizes and it, and, it, and it leads the people into victory in the battle. But you see, for the people of God, they don't hear a ram's horn. The announcement comes from God's mouth. We may hear echoes of it in Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And so what's, in light of this, what's reserved for God's people? After this declaration, even though they might be dressed in shame and dismay and confusion and disappointment, He blesses Ephraim with his own helmet, a symbol of strength. He blesses Judah with a scepter, a symbol of dominion. What's God doing here? He's restoring them to their former glory. He's keeping the promise alive. His redemption plan is in motion. See, if you're here today and you're feeling like, man, God's given up on me. Everything around me is rubbish. Nothing is working. I've I've failed you, Lord. You don't have time for me. I want to encourage you. He's not forgotten you. He's not given up on you. He's not turned his back on you. He will keep his promise to you. And what's reserved for the enemy? There's there's images used of submission. We we hear this thing of a a wash basin and, and a casting of a shoe. Uh, some of you might even remember uh, the footage of um, the statue of the former Iraqi dictator, Saddam Hussein, being toppled over when he lost power. Um, what's fascinating about this clip is what happens after the statue is toppled. 
The people in Baghdad took off their shoes and their slippers and they began to beat this statue down. Now for us in the West, we saw that and it looked ridiculous. We'd think they're hysterical. But the reality is culturally, casting your shoe in that place was a sign of submission It was a sign of disgrace. It was a sign of rejection. So when the people of God hear that God has cast his shoe upon Edom, they are comforted because they know we're not rejected. It's our enemy that's rejected. It's God's shoe that is cast upon them. Now, some of you will probably ask at this point, why didn't God just do that in the first place? (laughs) Why go through all this hardship, all this confusion, all this doubt, all this rubble? The psalm shows us that God allows his people to suffer so that they realize their lack of superiority and strength of love. So that when they're in the rubble, they realize that God's love is superior, that his strength is superior. So that when they're in the depths, they see the weight of God's love come down and meet them. God will allow us as believers, to sometimes meet our wit's end in order so that he may reduce our our feelings of superiority and that we see the weight of his love come down on us. We would see that actually there is love for the unlovely. It's like one theologian says, there are magnificent pearls To be found in the depths of the sea. God's love will meet us even in the deepest places where we could not even expect anything like that. And so what's the right response to this? In light of our dismay, in light of our confusion and our disappointment and and everything that's happening around us. Daily repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. David calls his people in verses 9 to 12 to look to the Lord, the one who will be our victory. Stop putting your confidence in yourself. Look to him who will give you the strength to do this. Not only that, let us worship him. It's a call to worship. Look at him. Look how magnificent this God is. Flee to the banner of truth. But you see, there's a cost that comes to that in following God. It's the cost of denying our own sense of control. It's the cost of fleeing the temptation to seeing ourselves as superior. It's the cost of of turning away from the former life where we made ourselves kings and queens. And we gladly bow down and we acknowledge that he is over us, that he is the true king. And I know some of you may have even cringed at that. made you uncomfortable, this thought of of submission to God and and bow down to him. But you see, the gospel is offensive because it deals with our offenses. The gospel is offensive because it deals with our offenses. Some of you may have seen recently in the media of um, recent coming out of Kanye West's faith, um, returning back to God. And for many of us, we're probably skeptical, doubtful, maybe even a little confused, um, and maybe you're not even sure that it's real, and we're shocked. But the reality is when the gospel meets with us, we should be more shocked that God saved us. 
We should be more shocked that God saved us because we know what's happening in our hearts. We know what's going through our minds. We know our own actions. We know our own words. You should be more shocked that God saved you than if he saved Kanye West. Thanks. (laughs) Um, So, together... As a church, as believers, as a community, we need to encourage each other to repent together. Repentance is often seen as just this solitude thing that we do. No, it's something for all of us to do together. It's turning away and and pointing one another and going, look to the Lord. He's our victory. David does it for the people. He holds the people of God in his heart. He's concerned for them. He calls them, let us repent. Let us look to the Lord. Let us put our faith in him and let us worship him. Worship is not just the songs we sing here on Sunday. I know a lot of you know that. It's not the devotionals that we do in the morning and the evening. Worship is, as Paul says, to offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your act of spiritual worship. It means that this week, whether you're sat at a computer tallying up the next prophets or you know you're changing nappies or milk bottles or you're serving the next cup of coffee or you're dealing with that difficult person it means that in that situation you acknowledge God you give up yourself to him you do this well and you do it for him it doesn't mean that you sign off everything with John 3:16 it means you acknowledge him in your doing you you're grateful in your heart you, you welcome into it. And so we see in 2 Samuel that actually God does lead the people of God into victory. But it involves David's doing. It involves David's doing. For many of us here, we, we struggle with the notion of that, that we could be involved with God's doing. That, that prayer and acting cannot be together. That, you know, if I pray for something... And then I go and do something about it that maybe God's only 20% involved with the situation. Because he, he deals with the prayer, but he's not really involved with my doing. But David is convinced that wherever he went, God would preserve him. So when David prayed for deliverance for the people of God, he didn't just sit back and watch God do the work. He picked up his sword and he went into battle. It was his act of spiritual worship. He engaged with what God was doing. He was convinced that not only did God want to be intimately involved in his life, but he wanted to be intimately involved with God and what God was doing. It's, it's, it's getting rid of that silly idea, let go and let God. David is convinced that he should let go, give it up to the Lord, and then let's go, God. I want to be involved in this. I want to be involved in this. Don't think that God is less involved in your activity after you've prayed. God answers our prayers beyond the firework moments, beyond the, oh, something's happening. He's also involved in the mundane normality of just putting one foot in front of the other. I've heard someone describe the book of Esther as one of the most boring books in the Bible. (laughs) Because it's just simple faith. It's just simple obedience. So at this point, what's the lesson for us to take home? 
It'll be all too easy for me to say, well, you know, we've got to be perfect. You know, we've got to strive with God and we can't make any mistakes. We've got to do as verse 4 says in the psalm, to, to fear the Lord, to be perfect in every way. But the problem is that it's a heavy weight for us to carry. If we're honest with ourselves, we've all failed to do that. We've all failed God's moral standards. We've even failed the ones that we set on ourselves and other people. As Paul says in the book of Romans, no one is good, not one. We've all strayed like like an arrow that misses the mark. We've all fallen short of God's standards. And we would cry, oh, wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of death? You see, the psalm is not ultimately about the people of God. The psalm is not ultimately about David, but it's about one to come. It points us directly to the one who was truly rejected at the cross. The one who, though, was righteous in every way, who was perfect in obedience, who, who, who kept the promises of God, who, who was obedient to his father, yet he suffered for our sake. He bore the, the penalty that, that, that we rightly deserve. He absorbs our debt. And in exchange, he gives us his righteousness. You see, the Bible says even in the beginning in Genesis, there's one who will tread the enemy underfoot. He will crush the head of the serpent. It is he who treads down our foes, but it comes at a cost because his heel is bruised. The Bible says there is one in whom the father is beloved. This is my son. I love him. The eternal begotten son who was not delivered at the cross. Even though he agonized in the garden. He was not delivered. But he endured it. He took the cross so that we might not face the same fate. That we might be delivered. That we might be saved. That we might be called beloved. This is my beloved. Levi, this is my beloved. Adrian, this is my beloved. Jackie, this is my beloved. That's what God did. The Bible says there is one who became poor and broken, that his body was torn, that he tottered physically so that we might be given the eternal riches, the strong foundation that we stand on. The Bible says there's one who is seated at the right hand of God. Who gives salvation to all who believe and trust in his name. That God gave him the name that was above every other name. But it came at a cost because he was spat on. He was despised. He was called all manner of things. So that we might be greeted with a holy kiss. So that we might be called sons and daughters. Saints of God. The Bible said he's, he's set a banner over our heads and it's a banner of love. But that was just because a banner of shame was lifted above his. David and Israel's victory is not just merely of military success. It's the reversal of a former relationship of dominion. Jesus' victory at the cross was not just the cancellation of debts. He reverses the relationship that we had with our ultimate enemy, death. 
He disarmed Satan. He cast his shoe upon sin. Death becomes a wash basin. It's the reversal of the relationship that we've had in the confidence in ourselves. We no longer need to find self-worth in our doing. We no longer need to appeal to God and make ourselves worthy. We admit we are weak, but you are strong, Lord. And that's only because of your weakness on the cross that I have strength. Thank you, Lord. And ultimately, it's the reversal of a relationship between man and God. Once we were separated from him, once we were his enemies because of our disobedience, once we despised him and rejected him, and yet Jesus was separated from the Father so that we might be drawn close. I'm not sure what we want to do now with this. <laughs> Pray or shall I just hand it over to you? I'll pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you are committed to us and you will always keep your promises. Lord, we, we acknowledge that life is confusing and frustrating and, and, and we, we feel vexed about, about the things that happen on and, and we just don't understand. But we know that you remain faithful and that you will pull us through and that you won't abandon us and you won't leave us. And there will be a day where we'll see glory, where we'll see strength, where we'll see joy because you have risen from the dead. We thank you, Lord. Our hope is in you in the gospel. We pray, Lord, that we go from this place full of worship towards you, full of confidence of who you are and your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.